0: Welcome to Tech Insights from Infotech Research Group, the podcast where our group of experts cut through all the noise and focus on what really matters for technology leaders. How much of your own health data do you manage and track? I bet it's a lot more than it was 10 years ago. For me, health data has become a part of my daily routine. I try to reach my step-goal and improve my sleep score. I write down what I eat and analyze the nutrients. And I even have access to the blood test results from my doctor, even though I don't know what it means. To be honest, it's almost more than I know what to do with. If you feel the same about managing your own health data, in this era of the quantified self, just imagine how healthcare professionals must feel. On the one hand, They have more health data about their patients than ever before. That holds huge potential for research into the causes of all of our health problems. On the other hand, putting all that data to use is a big challenge, not only from a technology perspective, but from a regulatory perspective too. So how can we unlock the promise of modern technology to help healthcare experts help us? Today we welcome to the show Greg Horn, the global principal in healthcare for SAS, and also the host of the Health Vaults podcast. Hi, Greg. Hi, Brian. Also joining us is Infotech Research Group's health industry analyst Jennifer Jones. Hi there, Brian. Hello, Greg. Let's start with you though. Can you tell people just a bit about SAS? For those not familiar with the software vendor. And tell us about SAS Viya, the analytics platform, that it's looking to help bridge the gap between some of the cutting-edge research happening in healthcare and its use in clinical settings.
1: Yeah, so thanks for having me on the show, Brian. Um, you know, my background originally is in healthcare. I was a clinical radiographer or x-ray tech in the UK and so I got to kind of see a lot of these challenges that healthcare faces, even going back all those years. And and SAS as an organization has been in healthcare for our entire history, which is over 40 years. But you know, I joined SAS nine years ago, and we saw a culture then that if you wanted to use analytics in healthcare, it really was primarily in a research kind of environment, or and that could have been inside the hospital as well. And what we've seen, and you kind of said this in your introduction, people are just much more interested in data now. They want to understand more about their own data and they want to understand how they can manage that data. Because, as you mentioned, there's more data than we can utilize. So what VIA does and the difference in VIA to other platforms is it's operating in a low code or no code environment. So you don't need to be a data scientist to start to get some real value out of the data that you have. And the VIA platform is open. So, if you're used to using an open source uh, software such as Python or uh, R Studio, then you can also incorporate that into your work with SaaS. So, what we try to do here is really encourage that citizen data scientist the idea that anybody can work with data and anybody can uh, manage data to get good results and show how to develop change within healthcare. Now, the final part of your question was you know, how does that uh, build that gap between healthcare and clinical setting? Um, I've seen a lot of examples in, in the last few years of some really, really good clinical research that would make a phenomenal difference to healthcare, but it never gets beyond the university. It kind of sits there and it doesn't develop. With the VIA platform and with this kind of approach to analytics, we can now start to see how we can take that healthcare from the researcher, into the clinician in a way that both elements can understand what the data tells them and we can start really implementing clinical change
0: yeah interesting i i mean it's great that it's a low code approach right because in this context we're talking about the healthcare industry using this product and it's really not fair to expect somebody to have like a phd in uh, medicine and then also be a data scientist, right? That's a little bit too much. Uh, Jennifer, I wonder what what do you think the potential benefits of a data data platform like this are for the healthcare research environment?
2: Yeah, this is a very interesting platform. And I think researchers in general, uh, you know, require access to reliable data that help them to produce, you know, uh, papers, especially access to de-identified patient data that's consistently available is a huge bonus to advancing research on a variety of projects. Uh, so I think what uh, Greg's team and SAS has, has done has been very interesting, and I think they'll move the pegs forward on a lot of uh, very interesting research by giving it a scalable platform that um, researchers can use to further advance uh, some of their research and then continuously go back to, to iterate upon uh, some of their research findings. So it's it's a very interesting um, pr- product and interesting proposal.
0: Yeah, SAS is a company that I've been following for some years. And for those that might not be as familiar with it, it's important to explain that it's got a really deep history in these analytics products. And this platform is about much more than just offering a low code or no code approach to uh, data analytics. It's got a really robust analytical engine behind the scenes too. In fact, there's some AI features that SASvia brings to the table. And Greg, maybe you can talk about this a bit because typically when we see vendors offer uh, AI through a platform, I'm noticing that either they're helping users to train their own reference models or they're offering reference models to apply to a data set. Uh, so which one of those does VIA offer and how does it help health researchers?
1: Yeah, so Brian, the whole idea behind VIA is to be an AI driven environment. And we have a number of tools that come as standard in that kind of package that will help you get started. and. I'm a big believer in a very realistic approach to AI, and we could probably spend an entire podcast just talking about you know, what really is AI and, and what does it actually mean in the real world. I think an important point to, me- to mention here as well is that I've never met a doctor that went to med school so that they could become a computer programmer, and yet doctors are very science-driven people, and so what they want to see is how does AI help them do their job better? Not necessarily. How does it uh, start to take over the tasks that they they think are important to them? So what we see now is is move to the the doctor powered by AI will replace the doctor who doesn't use AI. But we have to make that very intuitive for them to use. So for example, we use um, a visual analytics. Uh, a sorry, image analytics to look and quantify image data so that we can do analysis on an image. And that is used cross industry. But in the healthcare world, we look at things like medical imaging, diagnostic imaging, and there is an in built uh, application to do that within SAS via We also have uh, machine learning models, and we also have a chatbot as well, actually, that implements AI too, that come native within SAS via And what we're hoping to do with these is generate and create tools that people can just pick up and use we talk about the low no low no cold environment but that was really born out in the hackathon we did this year where we had significant input from the healthcare industry and these were people that had never used via before but had come from a background of uh, creativity and research and they were able to pick it up and really start to create some fantastic models. Uh, that showed how AI could work. And an example of that was in the visualization space, uh, predicting how a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, so the removal of a gallbladder through a small incision, uh, could be made more accurate and safer through the use of imaging data. So your question really was about reference models and uh, you know, how do you how do you create those? So we have a mix. There are a number of models that come built into the SAS Health version of VIA. But we find the most success actually comes from enabling people to take their data and their ideas and creating their own models and using the machine learning within SAS to create nuances in those models and continuous learning in those models so that we can uh, improve, tweak and create the best models possible. But one thing that we've become very conscious of of recent times is the role of bias and uh, ethics within within this kind of world so sas has just set up a new ethics committee within our own organization that looks exactly at that uh, issue and will help customers address that as they start to create and build models so there's a lot more to this than just what the software delivers it's it's the whole package of understanding how to use a platform like sas to to build and create models that will make a difference in the real world
0: Okay, great. You're getting into this issue of bias in uh, AI. And Jennifer, I wonder if you can just jump in there and talk about some of the risks that we can lay out here. I mean, we know that when we're trading AI models, we need representative data, right? So if we're lacking that, and we're training AI that can have medical applications, you could imagine there's some real risks there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, again, when... When looking at patient data or when looking at um, clinical data from this perspective, ensuring that it's de identified at a minimum is really crucial. Um, you know, clients coming from a U.S. healthcare perspective will know that in the HIPAA regulation, which is the overarching security regulation for the United States, there are 18 sort of fragments of data that can be brought forward um, into a, a research context. And so ensuring that you're staying within the scope and the parameters of of data that you're using in these research contexts is is really crucial so that you don't uh, breach privacy and so that you sort of stay in your lane in terms of evaluating the different data that's out there. Um, And as healthcare, like many industries, has been very interested in AI, the guardrails really have to be there to ensure um, compliance and to ensure that um, these research projects aren't uh, breaching anyone's personal privacy.
0: Yeah, this is so tricky in the healthcare space to make sure that uh, you are respecting the right, not only the right regulations, but just the right ethical considerations when you're p- putting patient data to use. And Greg, um, you talked there about some of the councils that you were forming in SAS to think about these challenges, which is great, but um, it must be hard sometimes to make sure that you have that balanced data set to train ai models especially when so much of the requirement is to remove and de-identify the data how, how do you get around something like that
1: yeah uh, uh, brian de identifying data is not an easy thing to do I mean, people think about it and they say well you take out the name the address the date of birth there you go you have a de-identified data set but a lot of the work that researchers are doing is into diseases that are not particularly prevalent. Uh, and to take a kind of a, a bit of a crass example in many ways, but if there's only one person in your town who has a wooden leg, if the clinical history shows a wooden leg, then that person is immediately identifiable from their clinical condition. And, and that's really uh, easy to oversee, to overestimate and to not Uh, bring into your into your calculations. So we have a number of approaches. We do use a lot of synthetic data. So often we'll take real data uh, that companies collect and collate, and it will go through a synthesizing process that really just detaches it completely from a community or from an individual in a way that that then makes that data uh, completely standalone but sometimes we really do need to be able to have that traceability of the data. There might be certain things to do with maybe an ethnicity or a type of conditional disease that, that really needs you to be able to pull it back a lot more. So uh, in the example of, say, like the University of Alberta, uh, all their research proposals go a strict ethics review. They are approved by the Health Information Act. Uh, they're seen by Alberta Health Services and the like. It doesn't get signed off as a data sharing agreement until they are absolutely sure the environment, as well as the software, has been under a, fant- a very strong security review. So that way you can allow some of this data that can be tracked back to come into your work. And it makes your data and your uh, approach much more realistic as well. Because One of the issues, if you completely de-identify data, is it does become much more easy to introduce a bias or not know that you're introducing a bias. So there is a fine line to walk in that space.
0: That's the issue that I was wondering about, is how how do you balance that between the de-identification, but also knowing that you have data representing different populations, which I imagine is hard.
1: It, It is, and it's interesting as well because patients are... Uh, very torn on this issue. So if you generally survey patients and say, could your health data be used to do this research? On the whole, people will say no, they don't like the idea of their privacy being breached and the like, even though you can go on any Facebook page, LinkedIn, Twitter, all those things and read huge amounts of personal healthcare data that they have chosen to share themselves. Uh, But if you go and speak to patients on a very one-to-one basis, and really this is how clinical trials are evolving at the moment, uh, and say to them, look, you you have this condition, being able to study your data would help other people with your condition have better outcomes. Uh, almost to a person, they will agree to do it. So it really is about how you phrase the use of the data, how people perceive the the benefits of the use of the data, and how that is then rolled into like maybe a clinical trial or a way to actually show patient benefits that really makes a difference.
0: Right. And that goes back to this principle of informed consent, which is really a huge uh, basis of all, anytime we're talking about personal data and privacy we have to, Once you collect informed consent from people, that's obviously giving you the green light to, to make use of that data um, in certain ways. But, you know, uh, you mentioned the University of Alberta there. And that, of course, is the case study that we want to discuss with you today, uh, because you're working with the University of Alberta Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry. And SAS Vi is playing a crucial role there in its data sharing and analytics platform. And they're using that for also all types of interesting research. For example, uh, they're examining the potential root causes for multiple sclerosis, MS. So, Greg, can you explain the purpose of this type of data platform for health research, right, in this sort of scenario where you're looking into the causes of a chronic illness like MS?
1: Absolutely. And interestingly, uh Canada has the highest rates of MS in the world, and it's one of those things that people have never really got a grip of as to why that is. And so what's really interesting with this type of approach in Alberta is they're able to get hold of real patient data. And as I mentioned in my previous answer there, they, they do that through very strict ethical approval, and they're able to use that to understand and try and look at what the root causes of MS might be within Canada. Now, you know, why is that important? Well, they can do that in a kind of a third party environment of a university and they can start to understand and do research with some, some very clever minds as to what may be a cause or what might be effect of of, of people's lifestyles that like that is causing this to happen. But then they're doing that in an environment where they can then apply it back to a hospital so they can take patients from clinical trials. They can take patients who are coming into the hospital with a condition. They can work with those patients, but they're doing it at slightly arm's length. So the patient is still getting the best possible patient care, but we're all the time looking to see how we can improve that and how we might get these new insights into a disease and how we might treat that disease And I think one of the other points that is important to this as well is when you do it in this research phase, you're really trying to understand prevention rather than cure. So you're looking to see how do I stop people getting on a certain path? And once people have a condition, and MS is a good example of this, what treatments, what approaches to that disease enable them to live a longer, healthier life with fewer medical interventions and be as, as kind of normal as possible uh, in, in their healthcare world uh, without necessarily having unnecessary duplicata, duplicata, I can't even speak, duplicated or unnecessary interventions from a healthcare perspective?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think about something as complicated as MS, and uh, it's mysterious, right? Because people know that there might be some genetic connection there because it is passed on through the family. It tends to occur, as you point out, in northern countries, right? So there's some clues there, but what's not established is the causal relationship. Um, We just don't have enough data, perhaps, right? So it, it sort of shows you that if you get enough uh, data and you're able to analyze it in the right way, uh, you might s- suddenly start to illuminate some answers, hopefully, uh, Or, but there's no guarantees about this. Jennifer, what do you see as the potential benefits of a da- data platform like this, in, in the, this sort of environment like they have at the University of Alberta?
2: Yeah, and I think that the MS example presents a fascinating advance, and I, I would say just in general you know, throughout COVID and throughout uh, some of the other pandemic-related circumstances we've all lived through, there's certainly been um, greater advances than we could have ever anticipated. And some of that is just the dedicated time and money that has gone into research and accelerating advances. And so the MS example does present that opportunity as well. Uh, again, accessible data can progress uh, breakthroughs in research related to things like MS. And uh, again, with this platform being seamlessly connected and, and have gone through all those regulatory hurdles, um, gives a an opportunity to researchers to have data that is accessible and reliable over time. And, and that's a really big boon for, for researchers and could really Um, advance some treatments and some um, areas for uh, further further breakthroughs related to chronic conditions and chronic diseases.
1: Actually, can I just add something there as well? What's important with these universities is that they are accessing non-health data as part of this process as well. So we see the importance of health data, but when you really want to understand underlying conditions like chronic disease like MS, it's looking at what else might be influential, such as you know where did you live uh, what education do you have what are you exposed to environmentally like there's a whole load of these social determinants that come along with this as well And by bringing those kinds of uh, data into a research environment like a university and really starting to understand the round of a person. Again, you draw many more insights into understanding that that person's needs. And We did some work around this, uh, around predicting suicide and self-harm in teenagers uh, and used a similar approach where we took non-healthcare data as an indicator of risk. Uh, And it's fascinating to look at what you can glean from that whole data set when you when you have access to it.
0: And Jennifer raises that point about the accelerated digital transformation that we've seen during the pandemic. And Greg, I just wonder if you have any comment on that. What what have you observed at SaaS during this time?
1: So it's been an interesting time in that the people who had platforms for analytics and were using analytics to understand their patient needs and their uh, needs to provide services, Really did come through this much better than the people who weren't doing it. So, we have some really good examples, uh, both from North America and in Europe, of people who were equipped with good data platforms, who were able to understand and predict what the impact of COVID was going to be on their facilities and act accordingly. And that often meant they didn't need to build surge capacity, they didn't start buying things they didn't really need, because they had a good understanding of their current equipment needs, their staff needs, and their uh, their buildings, and, and the kind of physical environment they could treat patients in, and were able to plan accordingly. And We've seen now a rush of people who want to get into that position. So this idea of of resource optimization is really growing. And it's probably the thing I get asked about the most right now. It's that idea of, you know, how do I start to plan my resources? How do I know what I even own today so that if the next problem comes along, I'm better equipped to do that? So that's one area. The other area that we see a huge increase in has been virtual care. And, you know, we've been pushing virtual care for a long time. People have seen the value of it. But there's been a number of things that stood in the way. Well, suddenly those things all disappeared. And we saw virtual care really grow. And in certain uh, instances, virtual care offers a much better environment for uh, one-on-one personal care, than, than in-person care does. And it's important you have a stream of data to go with that so that you are able to advise on things like ne- next best process, uh, where to, what to do next in terms of treatments and medications and the like. And you tie that into a virtual healthcare world and, and you start to see some real improvements, particularly in access to care, and uh, particularly in things like mental health conditions and other long-term conditions. So coronavirus has been a real catalyst for some of those things to happen. And I think it's going to live with us for a long time. And I think that uh, acceleration now into digitization is on a path that that was going to take a lot longer if it hadn't been for coronavirus.
0: Mm-hmm. And and one of the perspectives that you, we can uh, see SAS getting involved with here relating to digital transformation in the healthcare sector is through this network of healthcare institutions that are using SAS Viya for research. So it sounds like you're making a bit of a center of excellence there maybe. Um, tell us a bit about that network and some of the universities that are involved. What do you want to achieve there?
1: So my goal on this is to create this network of universities that can really share knowledge and data so that we can all learn from each other and uh, start to apply this into the real clinical world. Uh, I travel, well, before coronavirus, I was traveling the world to many countries and you'd be just amazed how similar the issues in healthcare are when you go around the world. Everybody believes their healthcare system is different and fundamentally they are built on the same building blocks. So by creating a global network of universities and we have Alberta, we have one in Dublin, Dublin, there's uh, one in uh, Denmark, um, and another one in the UK, they can start to share the learning and put all those brains together to start to really accelerate healthcare development. I'll just give you a few more examples. So we had the MS example out of uh, Alberta, but in Dublin, they're working on understanding and predicting endometriosis. This kills hundreds of thousands of of mothers and and, uh, children every year around the world. And at the, at the base of this is the fact that the diagnosis and treatment has remained the same for 200 years. So they're applying AI to start to look at the, the mother and understand what it is that is the trigger in endometriosis and how can they prevent that loss of life. Uh, we have another example in the UK where they're looking at uh, kidney uh, transplant and taking images of kidneys and running AI on those kidneys to understand viability of insertion into a patient. Very much in the research stage at the moment. But the thinking is, is that we can speed up kidney transplant and we can reduce the number of poor kidneys that get transplanted just by using an AI uh, process to understand how those kidneys might work. And the list just goes on and on and on. But as we build this global network, we get more ideas, more data, more sharing. We really start to accelerate the uh, the rollout in healthcare.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating set of problems that you put forward right there, Greg. And I think that's a great place to wrap up. So thank you so much for coming on Tech Insights. And do you want to tell people about where where they can find more of you talking about digital transformation in health?
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. Um, so my podcast is called the Health Pulse podcast, and you can get it wherever you normally get your audio podcasts, but we've just gone to video as well. So if you go to YouTube and look up the Health Pulse, you'll find our very first episode there where I'm talking to uh, Microsoft's chief medical officer, Dr. David Rue, uh, about the, how analytics and technology come together to deliver better patient care. So that's where you'll find more of me.
0: Okay, I'm going to add that to my queue. And Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on to join us for this. Great. Thank you so much, Brian and Greg. Great to talk to you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Remember to subscribe to Tech Insights, or else you won't get the next great episode. We're here every week, dropping in new, fascinating conversations with all sorts of technology leaders. So make sure you subscribe, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Really, whatever podcast app is your favorite, you can find Tech Insights. I'm Brian Jackson.